the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. It is a really big day uh, for various For a reasons. number of reasons. The right. biggest reason being your wedding anniversary. Thank you for saying that is the biggest reason, <laughs> Brian, because I feel like there are some things that have happened in our nation's history in the past year that are threatening to overshadow my anniversary. This and is I don't your like day. It. This is <laughs> my day. Uh, so yes, it is my 21st anniversary and I am pleased to be celebrating 21 years was realizing that Kevin and I have been together more than half our life at this mm-hmm. point. So that is like been together more than we haven't been together, which is a wild thought. But praising God for um, our anniversary. Today. All right. So let's ask this question and then we'll get to the uh, big anniversary na- nationally today. But <laughs> uh, if you could go back and tell Aubrey Sampson anything 21 years ago oh, today, my. you know, you're getting ready to walk down the aisle. Uh, if you could give some advice or anything, what would this Aubrey tell that Aubrey? Oh, man, that is like, that's a great question, Brian. I I feel like there's a few things. One, you know, I, I was reading back over some love letters that Kevin and I wrote each other when we were dating, and I realized how much... I had fashioned Kevin into the guy that I thought he was, but he actually wasn't. And it was almost like a little bit sad reading those letters because we did not know each other really well at (laughs) all when we got married. And we assumed a lot of things about the other that actually like was just not accurate. And part of that is we were rushing to get married because we were so in love and so attracted to each other. And, you know, so, um, I think I would say, I think I would tell my younger self getting married, like, let Kevin be Kevin Mm, and like, and like have grace for him. Like, it's okay that God made him who he is and he's a wonderful, beautiful man. But I feel like it took me like a good, like 10, 15 years to be like, oh, this is who I married and I'm okay with it. Like, I think a lot of our struggles were us trying to make the other into our own image, which is so sinful, right? So I would say that. And then I think I would just... I think I would just encourage my younger self and even younger Kevin, like, have fun, you guys. It's going to be okay. The mm-hmm. Lord's going to be faithful. You're mm-hmm. going to make it. I think we were so sober-minded and serious-minded, which is good. And you want that. that Like, maybe we forgot to have fun in our early years of marriage, That's frankly. Funny. But I feel like we definitely now have have done the work to to enjoy the reward. And I guess that would be the last thing. Like, have a long-term perspective and keep doing the work. It's so worth it. That's good. That's good. Well, happy anniversary. I'm glad Thank you, you did. Brian. Bring, I'm glad you didn't bring Kevin on for a quiz today. I'm <laughs> that one. What did I wear on our wedding day? Exactly. Exactly. And you could ask me the same question. My anniversary is coming up here in two weeks. So Can't wait. Big time. But this is a major anniversary, the one year anniversary uh, of the storming of the Capitol, of the insurrection, of uh, whatever phrase you want to use. Yeah. And I can remember vividly where I was. And Aubrey, you'll find this funny. You hadn't started on the show yet. And 
um, Ian had just left. So we were in that in-between period and I was sitting in a meeting uh, with our program director, Marcus, and the head of the station, Jeff, talking about the show. Wow. The ins- your name came up, others, as the insurrection. No, Brian, happened. only my name came up. Let's exactly. be clear about that. Exactly. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm And sorry, then I remember David. getting in the car and listening and Carrie texting me like, this is really scary. And I was like, what's going on? And, and so uh, just, just really wild. What do you remember about that day? It's your anniversary. So it must have been a little surreal. But what do you remember about a year ago? You know, I think um, what what I remember is one being shocked that this was happening in America. Like mm-hmm. this just felt like not something that happens in our country. I remember being just deeply disturbed and like fiery angry about some of the images of, um, I don't know if you remember, they put an image of like a noose. Mm-hmm. And it, so there felt like beyond just, you know, the frustration about feeling like this election was stolen, which is a a lie that was believed, by the way. Um, there was so many like ridiculous racist overtones, like calling back to the Ku Klux Klan, which that to me, I was like, what is happening? Like that to me just felt evil. It felt evil. The whole thing felt so evil. And then I'm going to be very honest. And I know I might offend some of our listeners here, but this is what we do on The Common Good. We talk about things that we agree with and we disagree with. I just remember being so, you know, I was never a big Trump fan. But I was so, so deeply disappointed in the dishonor of his position at that moment, because Mm. ultimately you look to your leaders when things like that happen and he egged that on. I don't care Mm. what people say. He egged that on, allowed that to happen. And he did not act like a man of honor or like a president of this country that's worth following. And I, I, at that moment, I was like, I will never be okay with this man in office again. Mm. Like I just was so, so deeply disappointed by his leadership. It felt deplorable and dishonorable. And um, it's just a sad day for our nation. Yeah, I think like you, it was watching that going. I remember standing in, I couldn't sit. I remember standing in my living room, staring at the TV going, wait, there's people barricading like the Senate with guns, like trying to keep people out. And, um, you know, as the day went on, you started to learn about the Mike Pence stuff and other stuff. And you're like, what in the world? And there were very heroic things that happened. There were tragic things that happened. and, and Aubrey, I do think as the days went on, one of the unescapable uh, disappointments is almost too way too uh, loose of a word here was the Christian imagery that we saw at Absolutely. the Capitol, the Absolutely. praying and the singing. And uh, that's kind of what, where I want to land this plane a little bit. Like, how should we as Christians reflect upon that? And before you answer that, there's some great articles I'll point you to. David French. He wrote uh, uh, in a, a blog post entitled America's Near Death Day, uh, reflecting upon that. But Russell Moore over Christianity Today, uh, earlier today, wrote this, Aubrey. And let me just read what Russell Moore, because I read this today and I went, oh, that's what I want to be able to say. Like mm. what he's saying here, because mm. I was struggling with this as thinking about what would we say reflecting back and how do you put your mind around this? And Russell Moore, as he often does, kind of summed it up well. So let me read it. And then I'd love to hear your words. He said, uh, Russell Moore wrote, maybe January 6th was a terrible anomaly in our history, one that we'll never repeat. I hope so. Or maybe January 6th is, as The Atlantic put it, practice for even more coup attempts and mob violence to come. I don't know. Either way, I know this. We as American evangelicals cannot justify what happened at the Capitol a year ago. We can't ignore it either. 
if Jesus is the one who saves, then we must go his direction. And that's towards mission, not resentment, toward gospel and not rage. Mm. And that means we must choose between the way of the gallows and the way of the cross. That is how Russell Moore, you say, wow, Aubrey, with a little bit of time we have, what do you think about what Russell Moore had to say there? You know, I just think that there is an instinct in so many Americans right now to like, like he said, rage or to feel like there's a war against them. And then they want to fight the war with weapons or with anger, with this Mm -hmm. type of insurrectionist behavior, getting more guns, getting ready for the battle. And I'm not saying anything about gun ownership. That's not what that conversation is about. I'm talking about the posture, right? Mm -hmm. Like our posture as Christians has to be one of sacrifice and cruciformity and love. And that doesn't mean being okay with evil, but it does mean like knowing what is true and what is right instead of, acting out of just emotion, acting on behalf of lies out of just emotional volatility. Yeah. Yeah. So Russell Moore, you can find that at Christianity Today, uh, a really well thought out article as we do wrestle with a very, (laughs) regardless of your side of the aisle, regardless of what you think, a year ago today was one of the darkest days in the history of our country. I think we can all agree on that. And uh, my prayer is that people continue to get held accountable for it. I I heard on the radio today, 700 people have been arrested for their actions on that day so far. So we want to continue cheering that on and continue uh, with that. So a dark day, uh, but one that uh, can be redeemed as we as Christians focus on our Lord and Savior. Well, coming up next, Frank Viola, best-selling author, blogger, speaker, has written a new book called Hang On, Let Go, What to Do When Your Dreams Are Shattered and Life is Falling Apart. We're excited to have Frank join us here next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by best-selling author, blogger, uh, conference speaker, and the author of a new book that we're looking forward to talking to him about called Hang On, Let Go, What to Do When Your Dreams Are Shattered and Life is Falling Apart. His name is Frank Viola. Frank, how are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it is absolutely our pleasure. And we, we gave people a little bit of a taste of who you are, but so that they could get to know you a little bit better before we jump in, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience? Well, I'm an author in the Christian world. Um, I've written uh, 14 books that have been published professionally by some of the leading uh, publishers in the Christian uh, space, Thomas Nelson, Tyndale Baker, David C. Cook. And I write about uh, the deeper Christian life. Uh, my work is really for Christians who say there's got to be more than this. And so uh, my books just reach that particular audience, those who know there has to be something more, something deeper, something higher than than what most of us have heard. And uh, and so that's that that's the audience I speak to. Yeah. And um, Frank, you, you know, we want to dive into your book, Hang On, Let Go, What to Do When Your Dreams Are Shattered and Life is Falling Apart. But before we do, you also have two podcasts. Can you tell us about those? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, One is called The Insurgents Podcast. And just a few years ago, I came out with a book. Baker published it. It's my landmark work. It's called Insurgents, 
reclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, I have gone on record to say that the most powerful message in all the Bible is the gospel of the kingdom, what Jesus and the other, other apostles preached. And so the Insurgents podcast goes along with that book. It's a supplement to it. And uh, people don't have to read the book to get into the podcast. But I have a lot of guest partners, really, on Michael Heiser is one of them. Uh, he wrote The Unseen Realm and a bunch of other people. And we talk about the gospel of the kingdom. And right now what we're doing in that podcast is we are going through every reference to the kingdom of God in the gospels in chronological order. Order. So mm-hmm. it's just a lot of fun. It's a it's a lot of uh, you know lighthearted, uh, uh, playful time. But we also dig deep down in in the kingdom of God as the scriptures present it. The other podcast I have is called Christ Is All, and this is uh, all about the deeper Christian life. And there's conference messages on there, monologues, conversations, interviews, etc. Anybody who's looking for a deeper walk with the Lord Jesus, they will enjoy the Christ Is All podcast. That's awesome. As if you don't have enough going on, you just wrote a new book as well called <laughs> Hang On, Let Go. Let's start at kind of a 50,000 foot. Frank, tell us about the book. What's it about and who is this book written for? Yeah, well, I got to say, um, over the last three years, I have watched so many of my friends and people close to me and then acquaintances on social media just walking through the northeast corner of hell in their personal lives. Mm. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, Your girlfriend says she needs space, and you're devastated. Your boyfriend has broken up with you. You have a child who's in trouble and doesn't want to speak to you. Uh, You have a parent who's broken ties with you. You have a loved one who's seriously ill, and you don't know how it's going to turn out or if they'll survive. You have a fiancé who you planned to marry and they've ended the relationship, uh, or you lost your job, or you're going to lose your job, or your career is in jeopardy, or, or your marriage is in ICU on life support. Uh, these are just some of the examples of people I personally know, uh, the experiences they've had, the encounters they've had. And so I wanted to write a book that would navigate a Christian through either a relational crisis, mm. a health crisis, and or a financial crisis. Those are the three big <laughs> trials that wow. we go through, yeah. right? Relational, financial, or health. And so what I did, uh, Brian and Aubrey, is I drew from all the experiences I've ever had where I've had trials and tribulations in my own life and those three areas, and I tried to drain out all of the lessons I learned and how to get through it. And so that's what the book is about. Mm-hmm. Hang on, let go, teaches God's people in a counterintuitive way, how to not only survive their crises, but thrive through them. And that can be done. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, that's why I wrote the book. I wanted to give to others that which has helped me through my own trials in life. Oh, that sounds so fantastic, Frank. And, you know, I know there are, there are a lot of books out there about suffering right now. It sounds like you're coming at this from a from a really different perspective, how is your book unique compared to the other books that are out there in the market right now? Yeah, no, that's an excellent, excellent question. And um, I, I would say this, that most of the books on suffering or trial or crises in the Christian space basically all give the same advice. And it, it can be juiced down to three, <laughs> three platitudes. Okay, the first one is, don't worry, trust God. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, that's one. All right. The second one is, it's all going to work out. 
All right. And then the third one is pray and read your Bible. All right. <laughs> now, <laughs> the universal answer for everything is pray and read your Bible. <laughs> and and I'm I'm all for praying and I'm all for reading the Bible. But there has to be something more to get a person who is just on the verge of either suicide or handing Jesus Christ divorce papers or they have so much anxiety they can't even see straight. Okay. We need more than trust God. It's going to be all right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, yeah. so what this book does is it gives, and it's all biblically based, but it's also experiential, uh, experientially based. All right. So I'm not, you know, I'm not an armchair philosopher as I'm writing right. this. Um, but what it does is it gives counterintuitive, highly practical action steps for what to do when you are just being rained upon by life, when you are walking through the deepest, dark and darkest caverns, how do you actually find Jesus Christ in that in a practical way? Mm-hmm. And, and I tell you, it, it, there's, the, the book is packed with scripture and, and lots of the scriptures are, are, are uh, obscure verses that we don't even see. Uh, or we don't often hear about, but it puts them in context. But it, but more than that, Brian and Audrey, it gives the reader practical handles, handrails on how to actually experience what the scripture is promising so that we can actually survive the storm and come out on the other side uh, as version as version 2.0 of ourselves, yeah. where God has leveraged the trial to our advantage. But here's the thing. We can waste a, our sufferings. We can waste a crisis. We can waste a trial. And and too often, this is what happens to the Lord's people. So yeah, it's very different in that respect. It's highly, highly practical. That's so important. I'm so glad Frank's going to stay with us for another segment because we have to continue and unpack this, especially in the time of a pandemic. So many of you out there are struggling. Uh, you feel that storm. And this book is so important. Again, that book is called Hang On, Let Go, What to Do When Your Dreams Are Shattered and Life is Falling Apart. That author is Frank Viola. You can learn more about Frank and his book at hangonletgo.com. You can also connect with Frank on Twitter at Frank Viola. That's at Frank Viola. We're thrilled that Frank's going to stay with us. Let me ask you this question. This might seem like a really basic question, but I do think as a pastor, I see people get this wrong all the time. Uh, What happens when we don't have a theology of suffering? Uh, To ask it another way, what happens when we as Christians are like, you know what, I I, I follow Jesus, nothing bad's ever going to happen to me. Uh, Talk to our people about just how dangerous that is. Well, you're flying in the face of the entire scripture, especially the New Testament. Uh, you know, Jesus said uh, that we are going to have trouble in this life, uh, but take heart, be of good cheer. Uh, I am, I'm victorious, and, and the message there is he will be victorious through us in it. But the, the, the bad theology of suffering uh, leads to a couple things. The first one is because God does not meet their expectations— they basically become offended with the Lord, right? And then they leave following Jesus Christ, which basically is the worst thing you can possibly do, uh, especially in your crisis, because the thing that you need is to find the Lord and grab hold of him. He's going he's gonna to be the one that, that's going to deliver you either from it or through it. Right. And he's going to make you a different person uh, if if he has his way. The other thing that happens is God's people get bitter 
and they become victims through their crisis instead of students. All right. Mm. And there's a big difference between being a victim and a student. Mm. And if we don't understand what the scripture says about suffering, uh, we will become victims, professional victims, <laughs> and we will become bitter not only at God, but at other people, because most of our trials involve other individuals. Right. Mm -hmm. So so those are the two the two main toxicities that come with not understanding what scripture has to say about suffering. And, and I do a lot of work in the, just showing people in the scriptures, you know, that, that we are going to suffer, right? It, we're destined for it, but, but there is a resurrection on the other side. Amen. And, uh, but, but again, we, we have to learn some things so that we don't waste the trial. And God is a great teacher. If we yeah. don't pass the test the first time, he just keeps re-giving it to us in different forms <laughs> so until true. we pass. So anyway, yeah, I go into some of that in the book as well. And Frank, I, I hope you're okay if I ask you something a little bit personal, but I'm guessing you're writing out of some of your own experience. I wonder if you could share just a story of a time maybe God met you in your own suffering or someone you were walking with who was suffering or even a story from a listener who's been responding to the book. Um, it's just so we could hear something personal about how God showed up with his intimacy in that. Yeah, well, I have a friend right now who, you know, has gone through a major, major uh, health crisis, okay? And basically what happened was they were given the diagnosis that no one wants to hear, and that is mm. there's nothing they can do. They gave them a, a clock mm. to, you know, how long to live. Mm. And so this person, thankfully, I mean, they they, they got the message uh, that, before I uh, published the book, you know, I'd spoken on it and they got the message and they, they learned how to hang on to the Lord in a way that they never dreamed was possible. But at the same time, they learned how to let go of the outcome. And, and this is, this is the tension that the book goes into in great, great detail. Practically, if you remember uh, the three Hebrew boys, they were put in the fiery furnace and they said this to the king. They said, King, we're not going to worship your golden image. God will deliver us. All right. Now that's hanging on. That's faith. That's that's putting the stake in the ground and saying he's going to deliver us. But then they came right around and said this. But even if he doesn't, mm, we're yeah. still not going to bow the knee. That's letting go of the outcome. Yeah. And so in my friend's situation, he hung on to the Lord. He let go of the outcome and it looked horrible. And this really hit me close because this was a very, very close person to, to, in my life. Well, the Lord ended up healing him. It was amazing. Unbelievable. Now, that's wow. not the story. That's not the story that we always hear. Right. right, um, right. But he was OK if he wasn't healed. That's the thing. He let yeah. go of the outcome. All right. But yeah. Jesus Christ came leaping over the hills at the, at the 11th hour. And miraculously healed this person. So I'm very thankful for it. But I can multiply stories like that both. Sometimes God delivers us from the problem. Yeah. Sometimes he delivers us through it. And I talk about both uh, in the book. Oh, it's so good. Again, the book is Hang On, Let Go. Uh, so, Frank, I'm thinking of the listener out there right now who feels like life is upside down. Uh, could be financial. Could be, you know, like they got that diagnosis you're talking about. Could just be discouragement over COVID or whatever else, broken relationships. Um, and I know that you're going to talk a lot more in depth about this in the book. But what's step one? What would you tell that person listening right now who feels like they're drowning, uh, but they don't want to lose their faith? What is what would you encourage them to do first? 
All right, so we're going to do some triage. Number one, <laughs> number one, the worst case scenario has not happened right now. Mm. Okay, you're probably in limbo land. You're in suspended anim- animation, and and anxiety and worry has gripped you because your mind is going three thousand miles an hour. The mind monkeys are, are are telling you worst case scenario. Here's the thing, you're okay right now. Hmm. you're okay right now. Worst case has not, you're still alive. You're still breathing. You are okay. And in the next five minutes, you're going to be okay. And the next 10 minutes, you're going to be okay. That's number one. Number two, breathe, Hmm. take a deep belly breath and breathe. And what this does is it, it shuts the monkey mind down. It puts it on hold and pause. And you know what breath, same word for the Holy spirit is the word for breath in both Hebrew and Greek. You breathe, and that immediately slows your heart rate down, slows your thinking, and now you're in a place where you can actually make some decisions and think clearly. And then step three, get a hold of the book, hang on, let go. Or even <laughs> even, even before you get the book, go to hangonletgo.com. Mm. There are three videos you can listen to. This will help you in your situation right now. Fantastic. All right. As you wait for the book to arrive from Amazon, you can, <laughs> you can listen to these three audios, uh, their videos, and they will help you right now. I guarantee it. That is fantastic. And speaking of those videos, Frank, we understand that you have a course that supplements the book. Is that what you're talking about? Or is there something else that you have for listeners? Yeah, for the listeners, the three videos on hangonletgo.com are absolutely free. All right. So that's not a course. That's a, those are instructional videos that go along with the book. But we do have, if people are really going through hell right now and they need something more than the book, there is a course. It's on that same page, hangonletgo.com called Surviving Your Storm. And they're very practical lessons where myself and another partner, we navigate you step by step through every part of your crisis. So that's just a little extra if people want to go beyond the book and they really, really need, you know, somebody to help them coach them through their particular issue. Uh, Such an important book for now, for this time of what's going on in the church and in our country. It's called Hang On, Let Go, What to Do When Your Dreams Are Shattered and Life is Falling Apart. The author is Frank Viola, who has been gracious with his time to spend some time with us. As he mentioned, you can learn more about Frank and his book at hangonletgo.com. You can also connect with Frank on Twitter at Frank Viola. That is at Frank Viola. Frank, thanks so much for this book. Thank you for being so generous with your time. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. Oh, it's been my privilege. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. Um, Brian, okay, we just had Christmas. So it's that time of year when we need to be, many of us need to be writing thank you notes. And it got me thinking about the fact that not many people probably are writing thank you notes. And I wondered how many people are even writing letters anymore. So let me just ask you personally, When's the last time you wrote a thank you note? When's the last time you sent a handwritten letter to someone? Yeah, you're getting me with a handwritten letter there because I will send thank you emails and mm-hmm, I will mm-hmm. send, but I can't, I, is this really bad? I don't know the last time I did. It's been right. a very long time. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So I, you? 
I tend to write cards to people who, especially good friends of mine who are going through hard things. So I am a card writer. I love sending a card in the mail. I actually like sending flowers, but that gets expensive. So cards are the next best thing. And I do in my family, we grew up like, I don't know if it's Southern. I don't know what it is, but like you have to write a thank you note. I mean, to the Mm. point where you're like almost writing thank you notes for thank you notes. You know what I mean? Like it's a little bit overkill, but (laughs) so it is like my kids, I drill into them. Like it is time to write thank you notes for your Christmas gifts right now. But I I do think like I used to, I remember before email, before text, I used to write long letters to friends or to Kevin or to my mom and dad and put stickers on them and decorate them and send them in the mail. And I feel like the art of that kind of letter writing, uh, that's gone. Yes, I would. I do remember like when Carrie and I were dating in college and I, she'd go back to Wisconsin. I'd go back to New Jersey or there was a summer where I spent the summer in Israel and we were writing letters all the time. And then you'd save them. And then, yeah, it's totally a different world because now you would just text or right. whatever else. But, yeah, no, we would write. I remember writing her a ton of letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it always meaning a lot when you went to the mailbox and got a letter. You're oh, like, oh, so fun, wasn't so, yeah, it? There probably yeah. is some loss there because there's a loss of intimacy. There's a loss of yeah. um, creativity that comes with a text or that comes with an email or whatever else it might be. It's certainly uh, a lot easier. And so that's nice. But yes, yeah, there convenient. is a loss there. Yeah. 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 I think I, I love that you just touched on like that excitement of going to the mailbox too and having a, a handwritten letter. Like, I mean, I guess Amazon packages coming have kind of replaced that. Like, but there was, some, there's such a thrill about that. Okay. Here's why I'm bringing all this up for a number of reasons. One, like I said, Christmas, thank you cards. It's my anniversary, as we've mentioned on the show. And I was going through old letters that Kevin, Kevin and I used to write each other love letters. Like you said, you used to write to Carrie. So I've been thinking a little nostalgically about letters. And then Scott McKnight, who's a Bible teacher, theologian that you and I have had on the show and we both really enjoy, he actually wrote about um, the fountain pen (laughs) and his love for fountain pens. And I thought it was so interesting because he talked about how, of course, now most of us write with Bic pens or whatever version of like disposable pens that are out there. They're cheap. They're easy. There are some very good ones. He actually talks about fountain pens as a matter of stewardship. And then he gives the history of a fountain pen. So let me share some of this with you, Brian. He says, humans used to write with quills from real birds dipped in ink, which I actually think would be kind of cool, except, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you can. Holding a bird feather <laughs> seems a little. Yeah, might be a little I don't want to get the bird flu. You know what I mean? But um, and then, of course, the fountain pen was somehow invented. Um, and then the fountain pen, of course, you know, switched to the the pen that we all know it. But he says he still writes with a fountain pen. And he has three or four of them. He considers each of them a friend. They're very personal for him. He says the nib is flexible on his favorite one. The feel is immaculate and aesthetic. And um, he says it's kind of like grabbing a piece of paper. uh, Sorry, grabbing a piece of history every time you grab your fountain pen and write with it. So now now I'm on the hunt for a good fountain pen. 
That feels like Scott McKnight, though, doesn't it? Like, yeah. it feels like Scott McKnight. And I totally appreciate what he's saying. I probably wouldn't whack so uh, poetically uh, and longingly about the about fountain, the fountain pen. Pen. yeah. But here's something I do know, Aubrey, and there's something – this isn't exactly what we're talking about, but I was just thinking about this while you're saying that. I type stuff all the time, right? I'm yeah. on my computer all the yeah. time. But when I really want to like plan and dream, I have a journal that I mm-hmm. write in. Mm-hmm. And it, I've never really thought about why don't I just type my – there's something different about writing there is. and having it there yes. and processing it that even in those times of like trying to long-term plan or trying to make a list of something, I will pull out this journal and mm-hmm. I will write notes. I will make notes for myself. I could yes. just as easily do that on the notes on my phone. I could just as easily do that on my computer, have a Word document go in, uh, but I don't. I think there's something to be said about the written word. Uh, and I think that that um, probably would mean something to your kids, to your spouse, to be like, every now and then I'm just going to write them a note. I, I think that would really mean something. Yeah, I, I think so too. And it's interesting you say that because I, I went on a deep dive of fountain pens this morning. Uh, and there is a guy um, who is one of maybe six fountain pen repairmen in the world. And he talks about exactly what you're talking about. Writing with a fountain pen is more personal, more mm. creative. And for him, it's a sign of of choosing not to be isolated, not to be depersonalized through your device, but instead to like reach out to other people. So I actually want to play us some of his audio talking about the fountain pen because I think there's actually something really profound and powerful in it. Let's go ahead and take a listen. People who think fountain pen maintenance and repair and customizing are boring simply haven't played with it enough. Fountain pens are like people. Everyone has a unique personality. I've been repairing pens professionally since 2000. In terms of the number of people who do everything that I do, there may be a half a dozen in the world. Some of the most interesting technology of the past two centuries has gone into the development of fountain pens. And in addition to that, a fountain pen is a really personal accessory. It's the most personal accessory you can have. But it also expresses you through your handwriting in a way that no other instrument can. The world seems to think that handwriting is a lost art, but more and more people seem to be turning away from the isolation, the the computerization of of the internet and computers and phones and so forth. They want something a little more personal, a little more deep in their lives, and fountain pens are one way to achieve that. A fountain pen is really a controlled leak. The control comes in in the design of the parts that keep it from leaking when it's not supposed to. can do a thing on pens day after day and then suddenly hit a pen that doesn't do what you expect it to do. You have to develop new techniques. You have to branch out. There's always something to learn. I I never go a day without learning something new about fountain pens and how to work on them. Okay, so I mean, I know it's a little quirky to think about fountain pens in this sort of like very serious way, but I I think the point is um, the value of Grabbing a pen, whether it's a fountain pen or a Bic pen, writing someone a thank you note, writing someone a letter, writing in your journal, like you were saying, Brian, there is something depersonalized and very creative and like 
pleasing about that that's different than being on your device. And I don't know that we could make this like a hard, fast rule. You should get a fountain pen and write from now on. But I wonder if in the new year that might be a an interesting habit for us to begin grabbing again somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about not technology doesn't make everything better. It makes yeah. it easier. It doesn't make, am I, like you said, am I going to go back to writing with a, with a feather? And no, right, no. But right, every right. now and then a handwritten, just think to yourself, if, if somebody you loved right now, if you got a handwritten note from them versus an email, what would mm -hmm. the difference be for you? Uh, and then maybe go write that person a note and yeah. tell them how much you love them, what, what you think about them, how much you care for them. Yep. All right. Well, I hope that encourages all of us to get a little bit inspired and like Brian said, to maybe write someone a letter. Coming up next, how can parents help our children inherit our Christian faith? We're going to talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, Brian, you mm -hmm. said you had a surprise for me. Well, it's not really a surprise. I just wanted to oh. get your reaction on the oh. air. Okay. Uh, I want to get your reaction. We know today's your anniversary. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to you, you and Kevin. Thank you. Uh, your husband, I just saw on Facebook, wrote like the mushiest, nicest, well thought out uh, post and oh, I'm yeah. wondering, does that does that melt your heart or does it put pressure on you to match? Like, how are you feeling right now? No, I literally opened this up. He didn't tell me he was doing it. it I was, opened up He Facebook. shamed every other husband out there oh, right now. No, no, no. He, I, like, started crying. Like, Did he has you? a list of 21 things that he loves about me or, or, or something like that. It was so thoughtful. It was so beautiful. And I – no, I mean, I'm so touched by it. It does not put me to shame because, look, I am – I am a gift giver extraordinaire. <laughs> I am a love shower extraordinaire. Like it is time for him to step up and do something like oh, that. So I just thought, well done, sir. Well, well done. done. You finally, to, you're finally my equal. <laughs> I would like to tip a cap to Kevin Sampson. That yeah. was really well done on yeah. your anniversary. If, if people want to see it, I'm sure they could follow you on Facebook or Twitter so or whatever. Precious. I really know. Was. Well done, like, Kevin Sampson. Husband of the year award. And I don't know if you want to block Carrie from seeing it, but the pressure's <laughs> on for you now, Brian. <laughs> A couple weeks. Uh, I'm going to have to hear on my anniversary. Don't you remember what Kevin did for Aubrey? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just wanted to get your reaction to that. He did yes, a great job there. I well done. Know. It was so precious. All right. So Brian, speaking of marriage, thinking of relationships in both of our marriages. Now this isn't true of every marriage, but we have had each of us between us, three kids, six kids total, three kids each, not together, but in our marriages. Correct. <laughs> and, um, of course, you and I as parents and Christian parents, we value and pray for and hope for that our kids will walk with Christ, especially in their adulthood. And I mean, now, obviously, but especially as they get older. And, you know, we've talked about before on the show how some, I think, Christian parents in this day and age, and I even have friends who fall into this category, feel like they shouldn't push their faith on their kids. I've heard language like that or, you know, shouldn't force, their, like they want their kids to come to their own faith. They don't want to push the Christian faith on them just because that was the faith that they chose. And I, I think, you know, I don't want to speak for you, Brian. I can assume the two of us disagree with that, that we think as parents, it's really good to raise our kids in the Christian faith. 
Um, but I, you know, I think what's interesting is sometimes we think that we, we forget how important our role is in shaping our kids' faith. And over at Christianity Today, uh, Christian Smith and Amy Adams, these two authors wrote about how parents are actually the ones who set the pace for their children's religious life. Um, that majority of Americans actually don't choose their religious beliefs. They inherit them which I thought was kind of interesting in light of what I just talked about, that that we are so influential in um, passing down our faith to our children. And I think ultimately what I wanted to have a conversation about, Brian, is how do we do that then? Yeah. If that's true, yeah. then how? Yeah, let's first put to bed the th- the one thing that you said about people who say, you know, I want my kids to come. We don't do that with anything else right. in their lives. There's there's there are very I should say very few things where I don't um, at least look to influence, if not flat out teach my mm-hmm. children about. Right? Like exactly. it would be foolishness when they're you know really little, going. You know what? I really want my kids to figure out whether they should run across the road or not. Or <laughs> right, right. I really want them to figure out if taking a shower is actually something that's good for them. Like, no, at no other spot do we do we advocate being really hands off on your kids. Yep. So why in the world would we do it? I with do not know. the most important thing that right. we have out there, like right. our faith. And so, um, you know, I do think the old saying that that more things are caught than taught is important here because we're with our kids day in and day out. So I don't think I do think it's important, uh, you know, what we say to our kids. But I do I think the most important thing is to realize our children are watching us and they're picking up from us on a day to day basis. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? Yes. What does it mean to be a good husband or a good wife? What does it mean to be a person of character? Whatever else it might be, no matter what you're saying, uh, you're you're more what you're saying with your actions is is that much more important. And so uh, I would say that even beyond uh, and it's not an either or, but even beyond what resource are we going to use or when are we going to do this or this? Just how what what are they what if you, if you were the only Christian in your kids' lives, what would they know about being a Christian? Mm. What would what would they understand being a Christ follower to be? Yeah, uh, and and if you're like, I'm not sure, start to think about that. Maybe ask them. Maybe ask your spouse. Whatever else it might be. So, uh, the first main point for me is uh, this is much more caught than taught. This is much yeah. more about yeah. who are you. Uh, as a mom, as a dad, as a, you know, what are they learning about Jesus? I, I, so I think that's the important point in this for me. You know, it's interesting to me, and we'll unpack some practical tips here in just a minute, but hearing you kind of put, put that lie to bed that like we shouldn't influence our kids for Christ, it's like the enemy has really gotten in there and taken our position as parents and our yeah. place as parents and twisted it so that we actually are believing a lie that it's better not to. And I I do think for Christians, Christian parents, we need to be mindful of that, that the enemy will do anything to like stop the next generation from knowing Jesus and that God has planted us as our kids' parents on purpose. It doesn't mean our kids are going to perfectly walk with the Lord. We all know those, there are prodigal children, but at the end of the day, like it is a a stewardship 
to to lead our kids towards Christ as much as we possibly can. So it, anyway, I appreciate you saying that. Um, Brian, over at another website, RaisingEverydayDisciples.com, they have nine helpful thoughts on how to get started in discipling children. And I thought this might be interesting. We love a good list. But I thought do. it might be interesting for us to talk through the list just to give our listeners who are parents or even grandparents or maybe aunts and uncles, maybe sort of honorary Christian parents in someone's life, some tips on how to begin thinking about discipling children. So the the first step they say is, first and foremost, we must be seeking to grow in our own relationship with Christ daily. Don't you think that's good? Yeah. And I think that's what we were just kind of saying. Yeah, exactly. If you have a uh, an actively devoted relation, you know, uh, faith in Jesus, your kids are going to see that. Like they're going to, that's where they're going to understand. And then the rest kind of like that feels number one here feels like the umbrella under which everything else falls. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's the same thing we say as pastors. How do you pastor your church? Well, well, the first thing you need (laughs) is to actually be living out what you're saying. So that's number one. I'll read a couple more of them here. Number two, they say it's a process. Uh, You'll never get there. This is the, you know, it's not like there's an end date. Like, okay, now you're the perfectly formed Christian. Uh, number three, your kids are never too young to start. I would also say they're never too old to start as well. Because uh, sometimes you get to where our kids' age are, Aubrey, and you're like, oh, I missed it. Like, I totally, yeah. I blew it. Nope. Start now. Start doing something now. Uh, number four, keep it simple. Uh, that's always helpful. Point them to God in everyday moments. Good. Uh, here's number six. This is exactly what we were saying. Let them see yes. you in your relationship with God. Uh, family Bible time, walk along each child individually. We've talked about how our kids are all very different and pray for your children. Pray that God will do something. So I ran through them fast. Which one or two stand out to you there? Yeah, I I think the praying for my children and walking alongside each child individually. I do pray for my kids almost every morning, but sometimes I think I do just forget the power of a parent's prayer. And then walking along each each child individually. I think when you have three kids, sometimes it can be easier to lump it all together, right? Mm -hmm. Or just to focus on one and not the other, the one who's struggling. And so to think about, am I being intentional about spending time with each of them individually to help them invest in their relationship with me and of course, ultimately with the Lord? Mm -hmm. I think think that's really helpful. But all that whole list, um, again, you can find at Raising Everyday Disciples. Com. We hope that brings some encouragement and some practical help for you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so thrilled that you're with us here this evening. We're wrapping up today's show. And one of our favorite things to do at the end of every show is to leave you with something encouraging, challenging, or inspiring. I heard a very inspiring story this week, Brian, that we're going to talk about in just a minute. But it has to do with something we talked about earlier this week. We had Kevin Grillo on the show to talk about the March for Life in Chicago. It is coming up this Saturday, January 8th. You can learn more about March for Life at marchforlifechicago.org, especially if you're passionate about the issue of uh, pro-life, about supporting women, about anti-abortion, you're going to want to learn more about that march. Again, you can go to marchforlifechicago.org. But Brian, I bring that up and uh, thinking about this inspiring story, because when we talk about the issue of life, there's a lot of people, men and women, who make the argument that women should be um, 
you know, allowed to have abortions mm -hmm. because having a baby prevent women from doing things or from mm -hmm. having a career or living the most flourishing life that they possibly could. Like I hear that argument a lot, don't you? I do too. And we don't want to be uh, flippant about it. Mm -mm. Having getting pregnant absolutely yes. quote unquote interrupts your life. A hundred percent it does. You don't want to be like, well that's that's not true. That's not. no, it absolutely yes. does. The question is what's the con what's the uh what's the counter? What's the consequence? It's the it's the taking of the life of a baby. And so right, right. does that or does one outweigh the other? Yes, the the life of that child outweighs. Yeah. Uh, but I do think this is where the church, this is where uh, men, this is where uh, need to step in and go, but we are going to employers and everything uh, need to step in and say, uh, okay, it doesn't have to be that now you lose your job or that now your life is forever altered in a, in a negative way. And so there are solutions here, but yeah, I would want to say it is going to alter your life. Absolutely. Uh, it will. But that's not justification. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good word. And, you know, I will say that you're exactly right, Brian, as a, as a, I mean, you're married to a woman who's had several babies. Mm -hmm. I've had three babies myself. And so it does, I mean, it pushes things back on a timeline and it, it certainly changes the trajectory of things. Um, but what I what I love about the story I want to share, Brian, is there was a story, a Chicago based story here about a pregnant woman who um, recently spoke out about the strength of mothers and how having a baby or being pregnant doesn't have to put limitations on the things that you can accomplish. So I don't know if you've heard of her. This is the first time I've heard of her name, Lydia Yankovskaya. Mm -hmm. Yankovskaya. She's the Chicago Opera Theater Music Director. And she conducted the opening of the Mark Alamo opera in December called Becoming Santa Claus, which is so fun. Okay, so she conducts this opera. And then five days later, she gives birth. And then three days later, she's back at the podium conducting the closing of Becoming Santa Claus. That's pretty hardcore. <laughs> which is so <laughs> hardcore and so wild and so impressive. But I wanted to take a listen to part of her story. And then we're going to talk about the, the inspiration of it. So let's go ahead and take a listen to part of Lydia's story. Talk about an encore 35-year-old Russian-American opera and symphonic conductor. Lydia Yanukovskaya is inspiring moms all around the world. After she returned to the stage at the Chicago Opera Theater uh, just three days after she gave birth, the mom of two tweeted about her performance or ordeal, depending on your point of view, saying she spent her, quote, holiday break, unquote, conducting an opera, birthing a human, conducting an opera, full family cuddles in that order. She also took the opportunity to call out the limited inclusion of women as conductors, that's for sure, tweeting, we must give mothers and all parents more support However, we should never assume that pregnancy or parenthood would prevent a person from doing anything they did before kids. Okay, Brian. So, you know, again, not every woman in the world can give birth three days later, conduct an opera. You know what I'm saying? Or not every not, man, not every man yeah, in the world can yeah. like after I needed a full week after my wife gave Absolutely. birth. Absolutely. I was like barely walking or functioning. But I think what I, what I love about her story, and again, this isn't for all women, but I love that she is sort of saying, look, this is a personal decision and we don't have to assume that pregnancy or parenthood prevents a woman from doing the things she wants to do. Now, mm -hmm. it certainly might. It certainly can. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to. And I'm sure this woman has a community of people around her. Obviously, somebody's at home taking care of her baby or she's got a nanny or there's someone at the op 
the opera house helping. She's not doing this alone. So this takes a village, as they say. Um, But I I think it is so inspiring, not just the fact that three days later she's conducting the opera. That is obviously inspiring. But the fact that she's like, look, let's not assume this has to mean my life stops. Like there are ways that women can keep doing what they have been called to do while having children. Absolutely. And uh, again, Aubrey, it gets back, the heart of this discussion gets back to and um, for men and women, but particularly the burden falls on women here. Yep. Um, the ultimate end in life is not that my life goes perfectly as I wanted it to be or that I'm perfectly happy or that I've yeah. uh, the pathway that I charted out for myself is never interrupted like that. Right. That can't be what you're looking for in life because that's not how life works. Uh, the the coming of a baby, even an unexpected baby, uh, is is a remarkable thing. And and the the trade off here for my life is going exactly as I want it to go is uh, so therefore I have to get rid of this child. And so that's yeah. what we want to highlight. But yeah, I, I think it, you like you said, it takes a village, and I I do think this puts the pressure again yes. in the lap of churches yep. and vocal pro life. Yeah. People, activists like ourselves who want to say, uh, have the baby. Well, okay. How are you going to support that mother? Yes. How are, what are you going to expect out of the men who, uh, equally created that child? Yes. What are you at church going to do to come around that child? And and so that's where the conversation needs to go. It can't just be, Hey, have the baby and deal with it. You know, figure it out. Right. It needs to be, yep. No, we want to be pro-life. And part of being pro-life is to, um, come around these women, uh, well, like organizations like CareNet, right? Like we talked with yes. Care, the president and CEO of CareNet doing phenomenal work going, we know that there's more to this than just getting up and yelling, uh, yeah. we're pro-life, but there has to be kind of a holistic uh, supporting of moms and the church can kind of lead the way on that. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately why I found this story so inspiring. Again, yes, it's incredible that three days after giving birth, the woman conducts an orchestra like I could barely put my pants back on. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, So that's incredible. But I do think the behind the scenes story is that there's somebody helping her out. And so I do think, Brian, you're exactly right. Like this is a call to the church. Like, how are we going to be the ones who say to women like Lydia hey, I'll come babysit so you can go back to the opera. Or, hey, I'll bring you formula and diapers and I'll sit in the green room at the opera house for you. I'm, of course, using this example metaphorically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that you can do what you are called to do. Like, I think this is such an important and really wonderful part of the pro-life conversation that while it is about the life of the most vulnerable in our community and protecting that life matters so deeply to God, it's also a conversation about how women can thrive as moms and in their careers. And if the church will step up and partner with women, if the Christian community will come up and walk beside women, this doesn't have to be the thing that stops her in her tracks. And so that she can at least have the option to give birth and then keep living the life that God has Mm -hmm. for her. That may be Mm -hmm. being a stay-at-home mom for the rest of her days. That may be working part-time. That may be conducting an opera. I don't know what it's going to be for each woman, but the reality is women can do this when they have partners with them. And I think you're exactly right, right, Brian. This is a call to the church to be that partner in helping her raise her kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think that's, that is on the church's docket going forward for sure. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we hope that that gives you some type of encouragement today as you think about 
pursuing your pro-life stance or walking with women who are um, giving birth, single moms especially, let's keep them in mind. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.